Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends. I'm Lynn, your host, and today we have a really exciting episode where we're going to be talking about fashion. Fashion in the past, when I was the PR guru, and fashion in the present and future with sustainable fashion pioneer Ursula de Castro. I have loved fashion my whole life, but certainly as far as back as I can remember, and I was a mad teenager with all the trends of the times. I was a mod, I was a rocker, I was at Bieber when it first opened. I mean, some of these names possibly you don't even know. But it was wonderful growing up in the 60s and then opening a PR company in the 70s and being part right at the front of the fashion industry in the 80s and 90s. I worked for some of the top designer names, Catherine Hamlet, Wendy Dagworthy, Jasper Conran, Vivian Westwood, Jean-Paul Gaultier. I worked for most of the high street at different times. I worked for department stores like Harvey Nichols and Harrods. I worked for chain groups, mail order, next, you name it, <laughs> pretty much at some point or other I, I was there. I also created London Fashion Week in its current form in the early 80s. I put the first central venue together where the designers could all have their shows and it wouldn't be necessary for the press and the buyers to be travelling all over London to different showrooms and different venues, although that didn't last forever. I started off putting up a big tent paid for by different clients of mine at, at the Commonwealth Institute in Kensington, and we then moved it to an enormous space at the Duke of York Barracks in Chelsea. And that is where it really came into its own. We would have all the pop stars sitting there in the front row, Madonna, Boy George, Spandau Ballet, and we would even have, on occasion, the Princess of Wales. Diana would pop down and have a look at what was coming next. Fashion shows were great fun in those days, and although the industry was serious, we didn't take ourselves nearly so seriously in the presentations. And they were all very, very successful. We had children. We had elegant women with long grey hair. We had drag queens. It was very RuPaul all the way through it, actually, when I think about it. And the best show of them all was Fashion Aid at the Albert Hall, which I put on together with Harvey Goldsmith and Sir Bob Geldof and various designers, including Jasper Conran. And we asked the top designers from around, from around the world to come together in this fantastic extravaganza and raise money for starving children in Africa in the same way that Live Aid did. Everybody said yes. We had the top rock stars in the world, either in the scenes or introducing Annie Lennox, Freddie Mercury, Madness. And it was just incredible fun. And the scene that I loved the best, of course, was the one I was in, Catherine Hamlet. Catherine had this vision of just a stage full of the most bizarre people. So we had a, a, we had a man dressed as Margaret Thatcher, banging everybody with a handbag. We had um, Tibetan monks chanting. We had African drummers. And we had lots and lots of people we knew all wearing one of her yellow slogan T-shirts dancing up and down the stage. Years later, I happened to see a little excerpt from it at the V&A at an exhibition and caught sight of myself just for a nanosecond dancing up the catwalk, much younger than I was when I watched it, having the time of my life. 
Fashion Aid. I will never forget it. Wonderful. And lots of other fun times. I mean, it was a real enjoyable party, social tribe of friends. I started to become a Buddhist during those days. And I, in my usual way, got everybody else chanting too. So we had hairdressers, fashion show producers, models, designers, all chanting away. And we would start off in the tents at the Duke of York Barracks in Chelsea every morning during Fashion Week, chanting for the success of the week and success for the designers. And we would literally almost lift the tents off with the sound and the energy of our vibrating rhythm. And as we did it, we could feel the energy going out there and bringing back, indeed, all the top buyers and all the top press who had never taken London seriously but suddenly discovered it. So clearly it worked. It was fun. I, I think that was the thing I feel kind of rather sad and nostalgic about the most is that when I looked at fashion shows up till quite recently, they all seem so serious and they all seem to be just just not having the same fun. The models didn't look like they were having great fun and they all looked far too young and far too thin. Although I'm glad to see there does seem to be a bit of a rise of models of all sizes and ages again. So what's going to come next? I think the most important thing that we're looking at now at this time of COVID when they haven't been able to have fashion weeks is the, the definite move towards sustainability in fashion. Sustainability in the way the clothes are made so they're not damaging the environment, sustainable in the way they're shown, and sustainable in the way they're marketed. In fact, I feel so passionately and strong about the fact that it's time for a big change in the industry, and this was before the lockdown, that I joined up with Extinction Rebellion last year, just before the lockdown, and we put out a statement saying, time for change, fashion week has to stop, we have to sit down all together and decide how can we do it in a much more sustainable way. We announced that and guess what happened? COVID happened and there have been no more live fashion weeks for a while and all a good thing because it's given us time to think of new ways of doing it. And on that note, I would like to introduce my dear friend Ursula de Castro, who is a fashion warrior. She is a fashion revolutionary. She is the co-founder of Fashion Revolution, which has affected and changed how people think about fashion all over the world. She has a very successful book just out talking about how fashion are made and what we can do to do things a different way and has lots of answers of how the future of fashion could look. Ursula de Castro, it is so wonderful to have you here as a guest on my podcast, Frankly Speaking, with Lynn Franks and Friends. And of course, you are a dear friend, but you are many other things as well. And you are a fashion revolutionary, you're an activist, you are a designer, and now, of course, you're an author with this amazing book. Well, I don't know, I'm holding it up because you can't see me, but Loved Clothes Lost, Last. And I've been reading it and reading it, and there's just so much information. How are you doing? How are the family doing in these strange times? How are you doing? Well, well, I'm well. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited by the, you know, the whole book thing and um, working hard, getting ready for Fashion Revolution Week at the end of April, but very well indeed. Thank you yeah. so much for inviting me, Lynn. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's fantastic to have you here, as I say. You are a warrior. You are a designer. You're now an author. You are extraordinary. Since we first met quite some years ago, I have seen you 
grow in your in the extension of all the work you're doing and fashion revolution the movement that you co-founded has literally changed the world in terms of how we view fashion so that's welcome <laughs> thank you <laughs> anyway it's all genuine i really am so impressed with what you're doing and we're going to be talking about your fantastic book love clothes last quite in detail as you can see i've made copious notes it'll stick all the way through i love it it's amazing and what i love about it is there's so much information and knowledge about how things how clothes are made the history and how we can do things a different way we love fashion both of us i know that we also want to support the industry in a prop in a sustainable way so we're going to be talking a little bit about how we both see fashion industry going forward and how we as consumers and designers and manufacturers can really contribute to a new kind of way of supporting an industry which is very important in many ways but also very destructive in others so there's also other things going on it which are a bit weird but let's start with your story because i knew you when you were running uh, your fashion company with your husband felipe and you were designing using fabrics from leftover yeah. fabric really from other companies you tell your story how did you start getting involved in the industry to start with to begin with well, you know, that that way i mean in my case it was rather raw. i had a jumper that was broken a bit like the one that i'm wearing today that is broken with holes and i am very good at crochet so i took my crochet needle and i started to crochet around each hole with little beads and lovely yarns and salvaging jumpers as i went along and then you know, I wore them. Somebody said, oh, nice. Could I have an, you know, one? At the time, I was also doing a lot of textile printing and I was selling at the Cross, which was this 1997, 1996, 97. Super, super, super cool boutique in London. And so I started doing these little runs of jumpers, which then sold pretty quickly internationally. And then I started making more and finding more from secondhand to big warehouses in Italy. And then I discovered that factories produced their own obsolescences and waste. And so I started working with luxury factories in, in Italy and using their waste. So I had a brand for between 1997 and um, 2014. Very small, very pioneering, but we, know, we were quite cool. We were carrying sex in the city and we were selling in New York, in Paris, in, in Milan, in Tokyo. You know, it was, it was then, it was the end of the 90s. By the way, sustainability didn't exist. Upcycling the word, not in circulation. So it was a creative start for me. But that's when I started realizing about waste because we were pioneering it in the sense that we were producing slightly more at scale than the unique piece we could reproduce in, in numbers. And basically, we, I became aware of this huge problem that I had not been, you know, had not been visible to me, like it wasn't visible to, to anybody really. At that time, early notice, the industry was moving really fast towards China then. So this was my experience. I then co-founded and co-curated Aesthetica, which was the sustainable fashion area at London Fashion Week for the British Fashion Council. We started in 2006, which was a very pivotal place for the whole sustainability movement at the time. I, I remember. Yeah, I remember that, 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 was, yeah. that no one really understood it. What, what was it? It was the, the people that were running the fashion industry in those days didn't quite understand it. 
No, but that was a very hardcore group in the UK of organizations that were working towards sustainability. And Aesthetica by no means was founded by three people, which would be in name myself, Filippo and and Anna Orsini. And, you know, Hilary Riva was then head of the BFC. So she gave us the go ahead after actually Filippo suggested it. But the reality is that there was already a movement starting in the UK, the Ethical Fashion Forum, which then became Common Objective CO, was starting then. And the, the just to name a few, the, the Centre for Sustainable Fashion with Dillis Williams on the Francis Corners, London College of Fashion. So it that, you know, Ted, uh, Professor Becky Early at, at Chelsea College. So there was really a, a, a strong, and the first brands that were starting, Pachacuti, who, uh, with, with Carrie, with Unfounded Fashion Revolution, People Tree, and, and, but Aesthetica was pivotal in, in bringing a lot of people together. And then in 2013, I founded Fashion Revolution. Well, what was the start of Fashion Revolution? What made you start it? Rana Plaza. I mean, you know, in a nutshell, Rana Plaza. Um, when Rana Plaza happened, because it had been so predictable and indeed predicted because it was so closely... For a lot of people who may not, may not know what Rana Plaza was, mm-hmm. this was a time when there were... Well, it's still a time when there are a, a large amount of factories in Asia which are exploiting labor and are very unsafe. And Rana Plaza was in Bangladesh and burnt down, killing how many workers were killed? It collapsed, killing 1,138 and, and um, injuring more than 2,500. And they were mostly mostly young women. Yes, it, it didn't. It wasn't a fire, was it? It just collapsed. And- no, it just collapsed. Yeah, the fire yeah. was Tazreen two years before. That's the one that you're confusing it with, yeah. which was, yeah. you know, only 300 people died or something like that. But anyway, yeah. Just terrible. And of course, the fact that they were being paid peanuts. There's a great quote. I don't know if I'll come to the right page in the book, but there's a great quote about the, I think the CEO of a fashion company in the West will more in four days than fashion worker in Bangladesh in a lifetime. I think that's the quote you've got in here somewhere. It's just it's shocking. So, uh, yeah, so that's, so tell me, you and Carrie came up with the idea of Fashion Revolution. What was the original idea? Carrie's, Carrie in the bath called me literally straight away. We'd met at Aesthetica. We had been, you know, she had been one of our designers for a number of years, one of our most successful designers. And she called me having had the idea, she had the name ready-made Fashion Revolution. And then at the time we were just on Twitter. And it pretty quickly became obvious that there were people all over the world that wanted to uh, represent fashion revolution in their countries or support the birth of a fashion revolution in their country. And then we, we started with our hashtag, Who Made My Clothes, which has now been used millions of times. And the, the, the concept behind the hashtag was to ask something which sounds like a relatively simple question to expose how impossible it is for the industry to actually reply. And, you know, that in itself was very much honoring the lack of transparency that, you know, exposing the lack of transparency that that we had seen when the Rana Plaza collapsed, that, you know, nobody knew the, the major brands that were producing there did not know that they were producing there. And, and, you know, we wanted to honor the work of the people that had died, but at the same time expose the opaqueness of the system that had killed them in many ways yes and i remember when you did that first social media campaign i mean social media was how the word got out and you had people wasn't there t-shirts you made there was something to do with no 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 no. strictly no product 
Oh. We were one of the first campaigns to make our branding available to everyone to download for free online. But we've been 100% anti-product from the from inception. No one can make T-shirts. No one can make any product. We wouldn't be able to. Do you know how many countries that uh, is now are now part of? What we're just doing? over 90, and we we really are the. It's our country coordinators that make us who we are, because obviously we have so many um, individuals involved, and each from a different perspective, each from their perspective, from their country, and we work together as much as possible, and we you know to to hear from each other, but. So I would say we have sort of maybe 30 teams that have been um, with us for, for, for longer and, are, you know, strong enough to, you know, begin to fundraise and, and be more self-sufficient. And have the manufacturers, the large manufacturers and large retailers come in with you and have they changed the way they're manufacturing because of what you're doing? Because no, we have- don't really work at that level, neither with brands nor manufacturers. We have several initiatives in which we engage with industry, one being the Fashion Transparency Index, which we've done now for five or six years, I think, and which is a tool to measure transparency and public disclosure when it comes to the top mainstream um, fashion brands, the top 250. We've progressively gone from 40 when we started to 250. So that's a way that we um, engage with industry. But obviously, because we measure, we are completely partial. So we we do not work with fashion brands. But we encourage them in many ways to compete with each other. I mean, the Fashion Transparency Index is a very important tool. It's not really designed for consumers. It's meant to be for the industry. But of course, you know, it had so much press consumers do use it and, 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 you know, consumers should be able to use it to scrutinize really, but it's not a shopping guide, but it nevertheless has, has its cloud. We've seen a massive increase in transparency, not in how much they disclose, but in how many more brands are prepared to start a process of disclosure. And I think that transparency is much more on the map since we've been, you know, at it with, with fashion revolution for sure. Mm. Moving from Fashion Revolution, you found the time to write this really, really special book. And what I love about it, as I was saying to you earlier, is that there's so much information here. And I'm going to read out a few quotes, if you don't mind, because I've just marked them all. So at the beginning, you talk about the statistics in in clothing industry, and you've described them as almost grotesque. Clothing production has doubled in the past 15 years, and yet we are wearing our clothes less and less, either keeping them hidden and useless at the back of our wardrobe or getting rid of them without thinking of the consequences. And as a result of the supposed 53 million tonnes of textiles produced globally every year, over 75% are discarded, both in the production phase and at post-consumer level, which is after we've worn it. So the equivalent of a rubbish truck full of discarded clothes goes straight into a landfill every second. I mean, it's, it's just shocking. And I do wonder whether things have changed one way or another during the COVID lockdown. Are people shopping more? Are they shopping less? They're obviously not going out. They're not dressing up. A lot of people are sort of padding around in pyjamas for much of the day. So how has it been affected? Have there been any figures or analysis done that this has changed during this time, which is, as I've said before, you know, it's such an awful time, but in many ways, it gives us an opportunity for change and the things that need to be changed. 
What I do know is that there is a much deeper level of understanding that things are unequal. And this is thanks to COVID. I mean, COVID really has exposed the way that the fashion industry has been operating, the way that the the whole system um, has been designed to function. And yet again, as we were talking about Rana Plaza before, it always takes a disaster. But again, it has highlighted these profound inequalities that that the fashion industry is is immensely culpable of. We've all seen it. We've seen supply chain workers not being paid, garment workers not being paid for cancelled orders, being sacked or being made to work in unsafe conditions. We've seen, on the other hand, the main brand owners cashing in with online. So we see the misery and we see the excess that creates that misery. We've also seen and know that in many ways, there's going to be an awful lot of stuff stuck in warehouses that hasn't sold because, you know, whatever happened, we skipped a season, we skipped two seasons, I don't know. So we will be surmounted with with problems when we get out of this. And that in itself got completely out of hand, which is why I go back to the Fashion Week idea that people are supposed to show six months ahead the sort of looks that people will be wanting and then not want for very long. And it's quite interesting. I think the Fashion Week now is that, that it's online this time. That yeah. Anybody can watch the shows. And are they showing next season ahead? Are they showing forward? Or are they not showing- anymore. I mean, the kind of the trend thing, particularly with COVID right now, is, is not really, I don't think, an issue. People are preoccupied with showing something at some point somehow. A lot of big luxury brands have said that they were going to reduce their amount of offerings anyway. Well, they said that they were going to reduce their amount of shows. We don't know if that means less product in terms of offering. I don't mind the the concept of trends, both as a designer in the sense that, you know, they help you sell when something is trending and you can make it, you can cash in on it. And that's useful for young businesses or, or design businesses. What I mind is the quantity. I mean, you know, what the issue that we've got now is that it's volumes, of course, also volume of seasons. But the reality is that fashion, mass-produced luxury, there's a certain level of premium, are producing vast amounts of clothes that are, you know, simply made. A lot of people say that fast fashion is is predominantly bad badly made i would say simply for for various reasons and i also say because it's simply made it's simple to repair but it's it's up to us to generate this longevity and i think that the fashion industry is beginning to understand that a lot of consumers are beginning to look at what does better look like rather than more and what i say is that better looks mended and repaired and you know anything cheaper expensive designer or or, or fast i mean that is what you'd write about in the book about having well-loved well that's the name of the book and you talk about your own well-loved items in your wardrobe that you love the holes you love the history everything every button has got a story that takes you back to to part of your life even going from the from the designers at fashion week i mean how depressing must it be to be you know designed making designing clothes that are going to go straight into landfill to a certain extent and so it is about you know 100 percent their longevity and 
via keeping them as long as possible. I keep inputting my story onto these clothes. So for me, they're a little bit like photograph albums, you know, with each breakage tells its own story, each repair tells its own story as well. And, you know, I guess we're lucky that we live in a fashion time when this aesthetic is quite relevant. And many of the designers that are designing right now are really responding also to this look, which is, you know, it's quite particular, quite unique. But for me, there is a total aesthetic in the used, the torn, there is a poetry to it. And I feel that we we need to recuperate that sense with our clothes. You talk a lot about maintenance and caring and something I never thought of before, which is actually washing your underwear when you have a shower, washing your bras because it doesn't destroy them. I don't have such good quality bras as you do, so I throw them in the No, I, mine are really quite cheap, actually, but they last a long time because I, I hand wash them most them the, well. Actually, put a needle in my hand and start sewing around it gives me a huge amount of pleasure. I don't yeah. have the talent that you have and, and others on this call have with the crochet. But, Interestingly enough, I'm actually not very good at mending myself. And that's probably because from my years as a designer, I've been spoiled by the most amazing seamstresses. So anything I try looks a bit cat-candid. But for the point I make in the book is that mending shouldn't be just about us trying to mend or us. I mean, of course, everybody is welcome. But society has an obligation to bring back mending as Um, a habit for our communities. Fast fashion brands, brands that produce cheap clothing, their responsibility is that of introducing cheap mending in the stores because they are producing clothes that are being disrespectful to to their workers and to the environment. They're not paying the cost to the garment worker nor to the environment. So it's really about bringing mending back, not just as this kind of quaint but valid thing that you can do and exciting and you know mellow all that it can bring it's also to reintroduce it as a main value as a main principle as a way to act together to stop that one truck that goes into landfill every second to stop this idea that we can buy something that is so cheap that the only thing that you can do with it after you've worn it three times, is throw it away. I mean, there is no way. There is a quote by Antoine de Lavoisier, who is the father of modern chemistry, and he says, in nature, nothing is created and nothing is destroyed, but everything is transformed. Every piece of clothing you've bought is rotting in some kind, you've thrown, is rotting in some kind of a landfill somewhere, even if it was 50 years ago. Shopping for vintage or shopping even in charity shops and then converting them into something that is something that works for you, works for me. It's taken me 70 odd years to get there, but I do think I've actually learn to understand my style, which is a kind of bohemian, sort of slightly aging hippie style, but I like it. And I don't need any more to feel that I have to have a new thing every time, every season. And I do think that's changing. And we were talking earlier about the industry now during the COVID period. But when we think about it, a lot of the big retailers and a lot of the high street, which has disappeared, were pretty down anyway. The retailers have got to become much more experiential and engaging. But also give space. You know, we are going to see an enormous amount of closed stores. I also blame the fact that we've got maybe 40% brands that control something, you know, over 95% of the market. It's close yeah. to that. When a brand says, well, I'm, I'm 
providing my customer choice. That's what they call quantity. They call quantity choice. But the truth is that millions and millions and run of runs of pieces that look the same from London to the other side of the planet, that's not choice. That's just them bombarding us with stuff. Choice mm. would be to have all of the young emerging designers that London Fashion Week actually over the years has been quite brilliant at supporting. It has to be said, because there's been a lot of talent coming out from the UK, you know, since you started the beast. But at the same time, you know, we need to give visibility to, to designers from all over the world, to different things, you know. There's some very interesting designs coming out of Africa now. <laughs> I'm I was watching, amazing. Uh, amazing. African Fashion Week the other day, and they were saying that so many of the garments that the women have to wear are now being turned into fashion items. As we do the Fashion Transparency Index, one of Fashion Revolution's initiatives is called Fashion Open Studio. And we run it together with, you know, some of our country coordinators. And this last April, I think we had 49 designers from 13 different countries. And this year for Fashion Revolution Week is going to be even more, as well as the UK cohort. And these are all small brands from all over the world, from Zimbabwe to Argentina, doing things really, really differently, definitely better. No, and we need to see them. One of the chapters I made a note of is the internet and the, ri the rise of craftism. And the fact that, again, because people are in their houses and they're not getting out much, there's a return to to using craft. And one of the things you've talked about here is the old patterns that I remember yeah. from my childhood are coming back. Technology in this sense has connected all of the dots. You know, it's gone yeah. from taking something really primary, a primary instinct, a primary skill that probably lies dormant in most women. You know, it, it's it's so associated with us, the concept of sewing and making. And and, and then with technology, it just whoops, catapults it straight into the yeah. sort of science fiction realm. And the, the makers community, I have a huge respect for. It's, well, it's getting bigger and bigger, but it's been consistently pushing for, for innovation for years and years. My own daughter, Elisa Lex, has a company called By Hand London, and they produce paper patterns which are then sold both physically and in pdf forms and they're super cool super gorgeous oh, and um, you know to, to to quite a lot of people who buy them i mean they're a big 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 community and like them you know there are people who make their patterns available for free one of our fashion open studio designers and used to be also an aesthetic designer is katie jones who does this beautiful crochet. But Christopher Rayburn as well has made some of his um, patterns, waste-free patterns, the one that he uses to recuperate the waste in his studio. And he makes these kind of um, animals. He's made some of those open-sourced as well. So we are beginning to see, in a way, a new democratization of the product that it can be conceived and created by the designer but it can be made by you in in your own space for others or for yourself so you talked a lot about the ancient japanese art of borrow which i was fascinated with and how you can mend your jeans using this japanese art to salvage and give new strength to old damaged clothes so do you want to explain a little bit about borrow and how that helps give strength well it, it, it's actually to be honest with you guys i when my agent found me on Instagram and told me, let's do a book about mending. I said, mm, I don't know that I can do you a how to mend because I myself, I'm not that good at mending. Mm. 
but I can definitely do you a why too. So when it comes to borrow and any other mending tip that I give, such as darning, I please beg of you, don't necessarily look at just my book. I mean, we've got borrow, we've got Katerina Rodabal Mending Matters, which is a Bible. So I can only tell you that borrow is like something that aesthetically reminds us exactly of those torn jeans that are and have been so trendy. And yet it's something so ancient. And it's brilliant that we could actually, you know, not bother to buy denim that has been chemically pre-damaged to make you look like you've been attacked by a dog. But in fact, look back in time and also to a different culture and, and, and learn something new and make a connection you hadn't made before. So, Ursula, it's been amazing having you here as a guest on Frankly Speaking. And I love you very much. I'm so proud of you and the work you do as a fashion revolutionary warrior. And on the wall of my office here at the Seed Hub, I've got a picture of you and of me from when I interviewed you many years ago in Dea, Mallorca, I'm sure you remember, before fashion revolution had even happened. Yeah. And we were talking about all these, these ideas, and of course they've now become real. So thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you very soon. Good luck with the book, which is brilliant. Thank you, Lynn. We do indeed go back a long way, and it is always a pleasure to see you, whether it is interviews in strange islands or on Zoom or whether we see each other as friends when it happens. So really, thank you for inviting me on Frankly Speaking. It's been lovely and a pleasure to be here. I love the way that Ursula talks about the joy of repairing and re-wearing your clothes being a revolutionary act. And it's certainly how we practice our beliefs at the Seed store and at the Seed hub. Our own fashion revolutionary, Tamsin Gregory, has been doing workshops here online for our Seed Hub Club members and offline for our Seed store customers over the last two years, showing that by cleverly putting patchwork on your jeans, new buttons on your sweaters, cutting up old sweaters and turning them into arm warmers and leg warmers, and embroidering all sorts of things, you can make a huge difference. In fact, she saved a number of my cashmere sweaters that have been eaten up by the moths and turned them into beautiful new flower-adorned garments that I hardly recognise. So we're all now ready to go to the charity shops when they reopen and see what we can find there and see how we can do them up. And, of course, we can still buy beautiful clothes Ursula and I both agree that we love clothes, we love the colours, we love the textiles, we love the fabrics. And for a lot of women in countries all over the world, making those clothes, working in collectives, is the way they feed their children. So we certainly shouldn't stop. But equally, we don't want to buy clothes that are made by exploited women in factories all over the world either, which is where Fashion Revolution do such a good job of reminding us to check where our clothes have been made. So now it's time for our very special seed exercise for this podcast. And as we've been talking about fashion and how to make our previously loved clothes that are sitting at the back of our closet 
loved again, I thought this would be a great thing to do. So I would like to suggest that every one of us, and I promise to do it myself, goes to our wardrobe and finds something, a garment. It could be a sweater that the moths have got to. It could be a pair of jeans that need a patch. It could be a cardigan that could just do with some great new buttons and get it out. And remember the different times you wore it and the fun you had in it and the memories that the garment itself holds, it is not time to put it into the waste bag yet. And what I'd really love you to do, if you've got the time and energy, is to take a quick picture of the garment that you have brought life back into and send it to us. I think the best place is to our Facebook page, Seed Women with Lynn Franks, or on my Instagram page. And let's see some of your creativity in bringing one of your most beloved and wonderful garments back to life again. So I do hope that you enjoyed this special fashion episode where we looked at the past, present and future of the beautiful clothes that we love so well. I hope you enjoyed some of my funnier recollections and the great knowledge and wisdom that Ursula has shared with us about how to care for our clothes and what goes on behind the scenes of the industry. I'd like to thank you for listening and taking part. And I'd like to remind you that we're going to be putting up these episodes every two weeks and we do hope you'll come back again. If you like what you hear and want to learn more practical methods to help you plant your seeds in your own empowerment journey, then please subscribe to this podcast, rate it and review. Also, do make sure to join our Seed Network if you haven't already. And together with thousands of like-minded women, you will make friends, promote your business and share your stories. As we say on the Seed Hub Club, you grow, flourish and thrive. So visit seednetwork.com and find out more, including how you too can become a member of the Seed Hub Club. I do hope you can join me for our next episode of Frankly Speaking in two weeks, where I'm going to be speaking about women and the movie industry, an industry that has changed dramatically in the last year or so. I'm particularly excited that my special guest is the legendary producer, Alison Owen, who is going to be sharing some of her own stories and experiences of being a woman in an industry run traditionally by men. So until then, I look forward to seeing you next time on Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends. Bye.